let's finish up with uh, Malachi, the last of the 12, and the end of the Old Testament in our English Bibles. <coughs> the timeline for Malachi is going to be pretty similar. Uh, we're still looking at the same time period. We're still uh, post-exile. So Zerubbabel had, had led the exiles you know, back about 537. The temple altar is rebuilt. The temple is completed about 515, which we just talked about. Ezra leads the exiles um, out in 458. So, so that's the second return. All right? And then Nehemiah comes 444. And Nehemiah is governor 444 to 432. That's our, our map, <coughs> or I mean our, our timeline for the era. Still under the the Persian Empire, <coughs> so not much has really changed there. And so we looked at the title and the author of the book. Malachi means my messenger. All right. Sorry, the map was in there also. We went from uh, a map with a couple, a map with a lot, and now a map with <laughs> like three things on it. So Basra is down there in Edom. Edom's going to come back into play. Moab over on the east side of the Dead Sea. Judah and Jerusalem is there. So the, the title and the author of the book. <coughs> Malachi means my messenger. Okay, the name occurs nowhere else in the Old Testament, uh, which is a similar situation we have with uh, Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. We know nothing else about Malachi. Okay? And one one we have uh, you know the word oracle, which we just saw previously at the end of the last two sections in Zechariah. So this, this uh, word occurs 27 different times in the prophets and refers oftentimes to a threatening message, a heavy burden that is going on. Regarding the author, some argue that Malachi is not actually a proper name, but it's the title of an anonymous prophet, meaning just my messenger. So I, I sent my messenger to you instead of, you know, Malachi. No references to the book in the New Testament mention his name. Um, the Septuagint translates it as my messenger in 1 1. The Targums, that's the Aramaic translations, okay, ascribe the book to Ezra. So the Aramaic translations don't say that, quote, Malachi wrote it. They say Ezra wrote it. The Talmud, okay, so you, you in my first class, you just learned what the Talmud is, right? So um, I didn't exactly plan this, but I told you when you read some of the scholars, they're going to reference this stuff. So um, those of you that were not in my first class, the Talmud is basically, to give you the short of it, a, um, a, a book compiled of a bunch of commentary after commentary after commentary on the Jewish scriptures, all right, in a nutshell. The Talmud credits Mordecai with writing it. So as the third of three oracles in the post-exilic prophets, Okay, so Zechariah 9 to 11 and 12 to 14 being the other two. The introduction to the oracles is different than Malachi. If Malachi is not his name, this would be the only Old Testament prophetic book that is anonymous. For some people, that's enough right there. Like every one of the prophets is, the, is listed by their name. So to have one that's not, no, I don't buy it. But for some, that's enough right there to say it's got to be his name. So anyway, but that's, that's some of the discussion related to the author. The date from uh, Eugene Merrill in Exegetical Commentary says, Haggai and Zechariah are noteworthy for the chronological precision with which they relate their lives and ministries to the historical milieu. Milieu. That means time period. 
in situation. This is not the case at all with Malachi. In fact, one of the major problems in the study of the book is that locating it within a narrow enough chronological framework to provide a, a sitzim living, that living, the situation in life is what that means, sufficient to account for its peculiar themes and emphases. Malachi refers to no datable persons or events in his prophecy, so it's hard to date the book. Which means you're going to have disagreement over the date of book. His reference to your governor in 1.8 indicates that he wrote after 5.38 when Cyrus the Persian allowed the Jews to return to the land, which was under Persian control. Again, those of you that are in my OC backgrounds class are going to see an overlap here for probably two weeks ago. The word translated governor is Peha, a Persian title. Zerubbabel bore this title, as did Nehemiah. Malachi, therefore, must have written after the temple had been rebuilt since he referred to worship there. So, the argument here is the Persian word peha, which means governor, okay, was was used during and after the Persian time period. So that would have to be <coughs> taken into account to date it. The, the other piece of information we're saying is that it would have to be after the temple was rebuilt since he referred to worship there. You can't worship at a temple that's not been rebuilt, right? So it's got to be after the, the 515 date. This would force a date after 515 when the temple restoration was complete. But next, since Malachi addressed many of the same matters that Nehemiah tried to reform, it's tempting to date Malachi during Nehemiah's governorship. Both Malachi and Nehemiah dealt with priestly laxity, laziness, neglect of tithes, intermarriage between Israelites and foreigners. Some have conjectured that Malachi ministered while Nehemiah was away from Jerusalem. Remember how Nehemiah came and went? In the twelfth year of his governorship, Nehemiah returned to Persia for an unknown period of time. Malachi probably wrote during the years that Nehemiah served, and perhaps between 432 and 431 B.C., the years when Nehemiah was away from Jerusalem. Okay, so that says possibly around 430, okay? Well, look at the scholars on the board and look at their dates. We got 450 to 430, 480 to 470, 460, 450, 435, 500, maybe, um, 90 years after Haggai, Etc. So um, I'm not going to say they're all over the board. I mean, they're mostly within a 50-year time period of each other. But you can see that I mean, it's not exactly a unified consensus. And and the names, if you don't know those names, I mean, those are all like top scholars. So <coughs> I'm not going to pretend to be able to tell you <laughs> which year it was within about five. Um, so that's the deal with the date, the chronology of the restoration period, and again. So this chart, pretty much, which again, this is from Con uh, Tom Constable, and I believe it's his comment. He probably reuses it, but his commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah is where I originally got it from. So we keep seeing it. So obviously, um, I did not put. Yeah, I did. Well, Constable says some 90 years after Haggai. So he puts it at about 432 and 431, and you see Haggai he has a 520. So. That's where he's putting it as well. <coughs> and this other chart, this is also from his also. So both of these are together. They just provide slightly different information um, on this. And so you can see Malachi right here, okay, under articles for the first reign and during this time period here. Uh, the historical context, all, all I really put here is that, uh, you know, he ministered in uh, Jerusalem. The theological t context, however, 
with a little bit uh, more. He's confronting sin. He's saying you cheated Yahweh. Um, this is the famous uh, tithe passage that occurs here that, that is used about robbing God of your tithes. Test me in this and see what I'll do. Um, but it's more than just that. It's confronting the sin of the leadership, the priest, and also the laity, the people. Um, it's a, a challenge to pursue holiness, and it's about the revelation of Yahweh's character and conduct as evidenced in and through the covenant and his covenant relationships with his people. <coughs> Themes of the book. Ezra and Nehemiah focus largely on exteriors. You've got to build the temple, sacrifice the walls, etc. Um, Haggai focused on finishing the temple. Zechariah focused on finishing the temple using God's future hope as a motivation. So remember, Zechariah was in there saying, finish the temple, finish the temple, but he also has a lot of the book that's focused on you know, the, the hope in the future that God is going to do. Malachi focuses on motivating the returnees to return to fellowship with God. Now, he's not the only one. That phrase, return to me and I'll return to you, was in Zechariah, right? So, there's a close connection. Malachi charged Israel with seven specific sins. Each time the response was the same. How do we do that? When do we do that? This hard-heartedness indicated their need for repentance and spiritual renewal. This is the difference between you tell a kid they did wrong, and they say, they hang their head, and I know, I'm sorry. Versus, what? When did I do that? Okay, that's what's going on, you know? So, the <coughs> themes continued here specifically revealed three things. Yahweh's unfailing love. I have loved you, says the Lord. And you ask, how? Wasn't you saw Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I love Jacob. The same theme that began in the 12 and Hosea. What's Hosea about? God's love. What's Malachi about? God's love. So this is one of those things. Um, I didn't I didn't look it back up, but I think that if you go to the notes on Hosea, I think I put the verses in there. That there's a verse in Hosea that matches pretty closely, I think, with Malachi. Um, <coughs> so Yahweh's unfailing love. Also, though, Israel's failure and strength amidst failure. Okay, are, are some prominent <coughs> ideas here. Uh, Melhouse's chart, of course, on commitment versus contentment and who, as how he labels it. Um, the idea of offerings is pretty big in Malachi. Sacrifices and offerings, as it relates to the temple. So every child of God, he says, will make an offering to God. God says, follow my commands, then you'll say, God cares not how you say it. It's about empty rituals. It's about religion instead of relationship, you know. Um, this becomes very big in the book of Malachi. So in Malachi 3.18, so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. The terminology of, of love and hate is, is going to uh, come up in, in the book also. Um, this is a big stumbling stone, and there's an entire religious group based off from 
a misunderstanding of Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. He did it to like finish, yes. Um, the, the phraseology, uh, Doug Stewart says it's, it's pretty much tantamount <coughs> to, um, let me see, how does he say this? It's the language of diplomacy. So love is the same as has a special relationship with, um, etc. It would be like, um, how we view, uh, Canada versus North Korea. Now, are we really going to go nuke North Korea? I mean, nobody has any intention really of nuking North Korea, right? But our relationship with them is, is one of, in the biblical terminology, hatred. I'm not saying we literally hate them, you know what I'm saying? So Doug Stewart is saying that this is the language of covenant relationship and international diplomacy, um, the love-hate thing. We do know for a fact that the love-hate is not scripture literally love-hate like you and I think of it. And we know that because of how Jesus talks um, <coughs> elsewhere and in the Gospels. Um, you have to hate your mother and father to follow him. So you should go home and punch him in the face? Well, no, now you just broke the Ten Commandments. You didn't honor him, right? So he cannot, he doesn't mean that. So the same thing when he says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Well, the same thing goes on. And we've already read multiple places of how all the nations are going to come and be brought in. And be, be worshiping, right? So this this idea, we've we got to get a better handle on that. It's the same thing we saw repeatedly in um, Zechariah um, about God's jealous love. And um, that always reminds me of how you know Oprah Winfrey says that when she heard that God's a jealous God, she says, oh, he's so insecure, does I can't serve a God like that. And so she went off, you know. Um, but the fact of the matter is, she, does, she didn't understand what he meant by jealous. Um, if she was married, she would want a jealous husband in the sense that God meant it because a jealous husband would stand between her and a rapist. Um, a jealous husband isn't one who would be insecure that she just talked with somebody else. He's the one that's going to stand between her and harm. That's jealousy. That's, he's, a jealous husband is going to not let you walk down some path that he knows will lead to your destruction. That's what God's talking about. When he talks about being jealous. And so the the problems with priests and with people um, in this book are going to be what Malachi addresses. In the New Testament, there is quite a few references uh, to the book. Uh, not nearly as many as uh, Zechariah, but more than uh, Haggai. So you can see the list there. Uh, as far as uh, literary aspects go and the features, it's a confrontational message. It's charged with sin uh, six different times. Charge is then followed by evidence. It's a Socratic rhetorical question type of uh, a teaching style. Um, basically, what Malachi does is uh, it doesn't mean that people immediately said it like that. He's putting the words in their mouth, you know, for, for the, the structure of the literary book. Um, but he asks the people, you know, this Q&A style is used by the rabbis. It's used by the scribes. Jesus uses it. The debate in the book of Malachi, related to the literary style, is whether it's poetry or prose. And different um, languages or translations may structure it differently. So that's where the debate is. As far as the, the structure of the book goes, the book consists of several short paragraphs on various themes. 
and there are no long oracles against the foreign nations or any extended burden against Israel. There's no personal experience to which the prophet referred, yet his style is straightforward, easy to understand, and beautifully designed. That's what Constable says. Um, however, there is always some debate about the structure. Um, a series of disputations is um, been common to categorize the book ever since uh, Herman Gunkel, he, turned, he uh, coined the term um, a long time ago. It was applied to Malachi by uh, E. Pfeiffer in 1959, and many commentators adopt it. Um, Clendenin, if uh, that's how I pronounced that right, analyzed Malachi as a monologue interspersed with exchanges between the Lord and his audience and believed Malachi is a prophecy posed of three hortatory addresses. This is discourse analysis terminology. So um, these contain three elements, a situation, a change, and a motivation. And all of these are present in the speeches that uh, he identifies in Malachi. And then he further remarks that identifying paragraphs or subparagraphs as expressing either situation, command, or motivation uncovers a pattern of inverted repetition or chiasm, whereas such chiasms are often identified on the basis of repeated words. Here, the chiasm appears in the semantic structure. There are three such chiasms in the book, identifying three divisions, addresses, or embedded discourses. So, um, <coughs> we will have a couple different examples of the structure, of course. But this is something um, I'm always interested in the, the linguists who, who focus on the discourse aspect. How does the whole book fit together instead of just one little section of it? This is from Centerpoint Bible Institute, their structure here. So this is the six disputations. So one, one of the things is that the six disputations is the common aspect of what you're going to see. Um, if you look at the handout I gave you, which is a rhetorical outline of Malachi, this is from Andrew Hill in the Angel Bible Commentary. Um, at the time, when I was in seminary, I did a independent study course with my Hebrew prof. Uh, and it was a comparison and analysis of the, of the Hebrew text and the Septuagint text. So I, I was supposed to translate um, every word from the Hebrew and from the Greek and then compare them um, on the book. I mean, thankfully, it's only three chapters, right? So, Andrew Hill was, was our my primary uh, go-to on it. Um, just as an example, the commentary, this commentary, is, is this thick. I mean, the book, you can tell from your Bible, I mean, it's like three pages, right? So, the commentary is that big. I mean, it literally is like a word-by-word -word analysis type of thing. So, I say this to say, th to say this. Um, he is an eminent scholar, Andrew Hill. This is a top commentary on Malachi. And you can see by the A, B, C, D, C, D, E, that um, if you take off the appendix, you've got how many charges in there? Six, right? So that is the standard that most of them will go by, the six assertions, the six charges. You can see on each one, he's got a declaration, a refutation, and then a rebuttal for each one. <coughs> Same as what's up here. So does um, Gary Schnitzer. This is basically the same. 
okay. Um, I didn't double check all of it out, but I think you'll find it's the same. You won't find the appendix up here. Now that's a little too small to read, so the next screen is gonna put it in just half, so it's twice as large. But I wanna make a, a point here. Normally it's a six assertion structure that is argued for. Well, Quenenden <coughs> has argued that this one here, number two, would be chapter 16290, okay, is actually two separate units. So if you divide that into two separate units, you don't end up with six for the same one, you end up with obviously seven, and you end up with a middle hinge in it. central portion of that is stopped being sacred. So then what you have is the hinge of your of your book is stopped being sacred. Now we don't have time to go into um, his complete argument as to why he does that. It is it is related to some parallel um, aspects of, of, uh, of discourse and speech, etc. Because that's how chiasms work. But so if he's if he's correct on that then that will provide an additional uh, center. <coughs> what I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to go to the next slide. So because we're looking at uh, Schnitzer's outline, okay, so this one, hypothetically, then potentially, we're looking at this unit being divided into two, right? Um, one, six to 14, and then two, one to nine. If we did that, then this here doesn't become the number three, it becomes number four, and it becomes the hinge, okay? So I'm just gonna leave this up here um, for now because I don't have the, uh, I couldn't find a readily accessible and didn't have time to type up the seven part one. So I thought I was gonna scan this. I have one here, but I ha maybe I should have, but I have additional notes on it. I probably should have just scanned it so you can put it up there. But on the other hand, you probably don't care. So, um, <laughs> right? Anyway, that's right. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, we will follow along with um, his outline because it's not that much different. Um, what it does do, though, is it, it changes um, a little bit of your focus or your emphasis. And if you, if you can end up with a, with a, a main hinge point, I mean, you don't want to force it, but if you can end up with a main hinge, uh, everything else kind of uh, gathers around that, and you have a stronger thrust or, or main theme of the book. And I would say that um, it's been a long time since I've studied this in, in depth in Malachi, but um, the idea uh, of stop being faithless, uh, that rings pretty accurate for what's going on. So, with that being said, I just want to look at a few of the aspects of the book in the um, in these first sections that are on the screen. Okay, so you can see he's already got laid out for you the declaration that God gives. So, an oracle. So there's the word oracle again. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was it? 
Esau, Jacob's brother. This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountain into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says this, They may build it, but I will demolish it. They will be called a wicked country, and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this, and you yourselves will say, The Lord is great, even beyond the borders of Israel. So it's interesting that Edom is brought up again. Edom is the most rebuked nation in the prophets. Uh, they constantly were a thorn or more to God's people. And so you can see here um, the declaration, I have loved you on the screen in 1 2. The refutation, how? The rebuttal, but Esau I hated. I love Jacob, you, I hated Esau. All right? So, and this continues again. The next portion. Um, a son honors his father and a servant his master, but if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is your fear of me, says the Lord um, of hosts. The Lord of hosts is in here a lot also, okay? To you priests who despise my name. Yes, you ask, how have we despised your name? Okay, so there is the refutation. Um, by presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you? The Lord's table is contemptible. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or a sick, a sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? And now ask for and now you ask for God's favor. Will he be gracious? So you see, he's saying your human rulers would not accept what you're offering me. How in the world do you think I would? So they're bringing them junk. It's just, just it's a garbage ritual. In verse ten, so what happens here is verse ten then becomes. Um, a central notion. So if we go with, remember, so Stitcher has this whole section down to down to uh, two nine. But do you notice something? You notice in the, like one, two to five, so we've got one, two, and three, so most of the unit is, is picked up there, right? Then if you notice down here, like two, ten to sixteen, I mean, the unit is mostly picked up, eleven, fourteen, fifteen, right? But do you notice here, one six to two nine. He doesn't have anything after one eight. Right? So uh, Clendon's argument is that that's because it ends at one nine. So if that's the case, this would be all matching with other stuff, and then it picks back up. Um, so that's at one nine, one uh, fourteen, it is right. And it picks up a new one at two one. Now the. The problem might be, so you look at 2-1, and in Holman it says, therefore. Now that seems to connect to the previous. What do you guys got? And now, same thing. That's probably a while, the and, and, okay? Um, so, uh, and now, however, uh, does not have the same um, impetus as the word therefore in the connection aspect. And now could simply be a continuation of a narrative. Remember I also said there's a debate on is this poetry or is it prose, narrative, right? So, and is, this, is the word that you get in between, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, they all start with and, right? It's a continuous narrative. So, <coughs> this is the decree is for you priests. If you don't listen and if you don't take it to heart to honor my name, that says the Lord of hosts, um, I will send a curse among you and I will curse your blessings. In fact, I've already begun to curse them because you are not taking it to heart. <clears throat> so I'm going to rebuke your descendants. And so it picks up here. 
what Clenenden argues is that each of these units ends with the phrase, um, the Lord of hosts. So if you went back up and you looked at, let's see, uh, one, um, let's see, the one, five or six. One six ends with what? Says the Lord of hosts. All right. Then you look at one fourteen, says the Lord of hosts. And then he wants to end this with two nine. Two nine, says the Lord of hosts. Then go down to two sixteen, says the Lord of hosts. So each one of these sections ends with says the Lord of hosts. Now there's some extra says the Lord of hosts that are scattered around there that may not be an ending one, but each each of the endings ends with sends the Lord of hosts, says the Lord of hosts. So that would then put chapter 2, verses 10 and following as the hinge of the book. You look at chapter 2, 10. Don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable thing has been done in Israel. Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and married the daughter of a foreign god. To the man who does this, may the Lord cut off any descendants from the tents of Jacob, even if they present an offering to the Lord. So the unfaithfulness of Judah is laid out here. This is also connected to Exodus chapter 34, 11 to 16, Deuteronomy chapter 7, and 1 Kings 11. So what's 1 Kings 11? 1 Kings 11, ironically enough, mentioned earlier, is a chapter that deals with Solomon's unfaithfulness to God. He took more wives than he should have. He got uh, horses and chariots that he shouldn't have gotten, and his wife's heart turned him um, away from God, just like God had warned. And so if you read chapter 11 in 1 Kings, what you find is that after God condemns him for this, you'll find that God raises up three enemies against him because of his unfaithfulness. You'll also find that Saul was offered the kingdom if he would obey and be faithful. David was. Solomon was offered the kingdom if he would obey. But Jeroboam is given the same offer as Solomon and Saul. If you can obey and be faithful, then I'll give you the kingdom. Continues there. So, all I have to say is that there's these other aspects in the past that um, buttress this idea <coughs> that the unfaithfulness is a repetitive theme, which you already know in the scriptures here. Um, so he continues on in this middle section. He said, for what reason, in verse 14? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have acted treacherously against her, though she was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't the one God make us with a remnant of his life breath? And what does the one seek, a godly offspring? So watch yourselves carefully. That's, that's the phrase that we had in the other book, right? And do not act treacherously against the wife of your youth. Treacherously has been repeated several times. If he hastened divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. So Doug Short says what's going on here is uh, the people are basically, they've been married for a while, um, and now they've, they've decided they want a younger, hotter wife. So they're hooking up with some like Philistine chick or somebody and ditching their wife. And so God says, obviously, that he, he hates this. Now, <clears throat> whether or not that's the exact situation that's going on, I don't know. I, I didn't read enough of what Doug Short said about that. But what we do know is that they are ditching the wife that they've been married to for a while, and that God hates that. The wife hadn't done anything wrong. 
So uh, whatever your view may or may not be on, on divorce or divorce and, and remarriage, these like there's no there's no cost or anything, even if you think there are causes for some aspects. So you have wearied the Lord, he says in verse 17, with your words. You ask, how have we wearied him? So I'm tired of hearing you talk. Why are you tired of hearing me talk? You know, it's like the kid that never knows how to shut up, right? Um, when you say everyone knows uh, who does evil is good in the Lord's eyes. So now they've reversed the good and the evil. Okay, so now, now we're moving into the, the second set here, 217 and following. Lord's message of judgment is coming. You've wearied him. How? Okay, I'm sending my messenger. All right, so that's in verse uh, or chapter 3, verse 1. See, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord will, you seek will suddenly come in his temple, the messenger of the covenant you desire. See, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a cleansing liar. He will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold. They'll present an offering to the Lord in righteousness. I will come to you in judgment, verse number 5, and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers, etc., etc. Um, you don't fear me. And then he talks about robbing God in the next section um, for the tithe aspect. So um, what is it that God threatens in here? He threatens to close the doors of uh, the temple. In chapter 1, verse 10, I wish one of you would just shut the temple doors so that we would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. Um, that's exactly what God does. He does it. It's kind of nice. Um, and there is no more temple for him because they, they continued to act treacherously uh, toward him. So <clears throat> in 3, 6 to 12, devotion to the Lord is talked about. Um, return to me. How can we return? Surely you're robbing me. How have we robbed you? Bring the full tithe. And then the next section, the day of reckoning is coming. Your words against me have been harsh. How have we spoken against you? It's futile to serve God. What profit is there that we have kept his charge? Once again, you'll see the difference between a righteous and a wicked one. So God's going to demonstrate this. He's going he's to show them uh, what it is that is going on. So both um, Gary uh, Schnitzer's and also... Um, Andrew Hill's outline. They're both very similar. Um, Andrew Hill's includes both the superscription and the appendix, which is what they normally call it there, the beginning and the end. And then the other challenge that is quite possibly actually a seven structure, not six, and the center point being 210 to 16. So the whole, the, the book as a whole, as we just wrap this up, is <coughs> how so they've been unfaithful to God. So it's judgment. And that's how it ends for the Old Testament. Chapter 4 <coughs> specifically is about the future day of the Lord and then the warning in verse 4 of chapter 4. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So we're looking forward to this day of the Lord. Elijah is going to come back again. He's already dead, so he's going to come back. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And <clears throat> how does the Gospels open up? John the Baptist, who is, Jesus later says, the Elijah, if you will accept it. And what does it say about John the Baptist? He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. That's exactly how Malachi. So you have the continuity between the 
end of the Old Testament and 400 years later, the beginning of the New Testament, as John the Baptist is the forerunner and preparer for the way of the Messiah that was promised to usher in the day of the Lord, which is going to be uh, a judgment and a salvation. And while they're looking for a political savior, he's not coming as a political savior. Um, he told Pontius Pilate that my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then I would have a vast army with me, right? So he's creating a kingdom that's not of this world. And that's what we have to remember. Uh, because our war is, is not a war of flesh and blood. It's principalities and powers. So as you go back about your other ministries and life, etc., um, just remember that. You know, People actually aren't the enemy. Um, they seem like it sometimes. <laughs> but... They're really not. So that takes care of.